You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I am very, very excited today to be joined by Professor John Davis. Um, John is a Senior Lecturer and Faculty Director of the Family Enterprise Programs at MIT Sloan School of Management and is the Chairman of the Cambridge Family Enterprise Group. Um, but for those who know uh, Professor John's work, you will know he is the pioneer around family business and family enterprise. And uh, we're going to be talking about the three-circle model today, which is 40 years old. Um, and we're going to be talking okay. about how it came into um, the world and, and what's next. So firstly, John, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show. Russ, thank you for inviting me. As I mentioned, you um, came up with the three-circle model 40 years ago um, and for the vast majority of our audience who work in the family business field or are practitioners or academics will be very familiar with that but for those family businesses who are listening who, who may not be aware of that side of um, your work can you just sort of introduce yourself give a bit of background about um, who you are um, and how you uh, how you came to be doing what you're doing now yeah you know I, I've been in the field of family business, before it was even a field, to be honest, this is a, um, a field that started formally uh, in the mid-1980s, and my introduction to family business was in 1978, when I was a doctoral student at Harvard Business School. I was fascinated with um, family companies, and back then, uh, they were given almost no attention. There was virtually no writing on the topic, even though family companies, which we've discovered and which I suspected back in the 70s and early 80s, were a huge sector, are a huge sector uh, in any economy. In fact, it's the dominant sector in most economies, uh, including very large and even public companies. Public companies are mostly family controlled. We didn't know that back in the beginning, but we know it now. But back then I was, I was fascinated and was working with a professor at Harvard, Renato Tajuri, who with me um, was interested in these very curious companies. And we both wanted to find out how they worked. So we were, um, I was charged with interviewing executive participants, executive program participants who were um, leaders of family companies. And I would spend hours with these mostly men. There were some women in the group um, back, you know, four decades ago. And we would uh, talk about what's on their mind. What are the issues they're facing? And it didn't take us long to understand that you know, obviously there are business-related issues, own, uh, family-related issues, of course, but also ownership-related issues. <clears throat> and not just about inheritance, all of that comes into play, but, but also about 
um, partner issues. The fact that, you know, I'm working with my brother and he, we're 50-50 partners and we have these issues or divisive conversations and what do we do about that? So uh, what emerged in that very inductive understanding of these systems, we understood they were systems because everything affects everything else. What goes on the business affects the family, affects the ownership and vice versa. So we were um, doodling and trying to come up with a, um, a picture where we could not only categorize the issues we were seeing, but also categorize the people. Is this person only an employee or a family employee, or is this person only an, uh, a family owner, but not a manager of the company, et cetera? And so the three circle model, this Venn diagram that points out there are these three intersecting circles and we can, we can um, uh, place you into this three circle system and better understand your interests, your perspectives, and, and also the, um, the conflicts that you can feel because of your role. And, uh, and that's how it emerged. You know, we, so this starts up um, in the late 1970s through a simple uh, exploration. And that it's obviously now it's called a pioneering effort to understand the, um, uh, these complex systems. Back then, we were just trying to find a way of categorizing what we were understanding, what we were hearing. And that led me um, to, for the next 40 years, focus my career on not only understanding and teaching about family companies and family business management, and later the broader issue of family enterprise management, where you can talk not only about a company, but a family office, a family philanthropic foundation, the system of family activities, um, but also to launch and expand a career of helping families around the world. Most of my work has been outside the US, by the way, um, uh, three quarters of it. So I, I consider myself really a, a student of international or the world's family companies, um, more than just a specialist in any one country's companies. Um, but it's been an exciting journey, Russ. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and just picking up on, um, you mentioned about your, your work not predominantly being in, in the U.S., Presumably, the three-circle model then is something that can be used in many different cultures. So it's something that can be useful in, say, South America, in the Far East, in Europe, uh, as much as it is that you kind of came to it whilst working in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the what's interesting back in the nineteen eighties, there was a uh, a ton of writing about the importance of culture affecting management. And so when I was launching my, 
not only educate my academic career, but also my advisory career, I was expecting that the issues that I would find in Finland would be very different than those that I would find in Florida or Argentina or uh, the Far East. And for (laughs) for 10 years, I was convinced because I didn't see it. I kept seeing the same issues popping up in the discussions I was having with family business leaders and others in the system. Uh, They didn't vary by country. I mean, hardly at all. Uh, A little bit, they were affected by national laws like inheritance laws. Um, But the issues were almost identical as you moved from uh, country to country to country. So the three, the three circle model is entirely applicable to family business systems anywhere on the globe. Mm-hmm. Which is incredible because the, uh, we're, we're talking off air and I mentioned that the thing I find fascinating about the three circle model is both its simplicity and its complexity. And for those um, listeners who who may not have seen the model before, if they've got a bit of paper in front of them, if they draw three circles in a a Venn diagram, um, one of the circles is family, one is management, and one is ownership. And if if they're in their own family business, they can start to list out who fits into which segment on the circle. So if you're a family owner and um, you're employed in the business, you obviously sit in that um, middle very middle sector where you're both an owner a family member and a manager in the business understanding that when you're trying to make a decision what hat are you wearing can be a a real light bulb moment um, particularly when we start to work with families and draw that out for them Um, how else do you see the model being used to help families with their challenges uh well you know it starts where you're uh as you're describing, Russ, that if you place people in the three circles, you you begin to understand more about how they see the issues that are in front of you. So if you're a family owner, um, but not employed in the business, you're likely to have uh, an interest, a legitimate interest in dividends from the company. Uh, that is different than if you're a non-family employee. A non-family employee will want to keep, for obvious reasons, most all of the returns from the business, plow it back into this company, let's grow the business, let's improve it. It makes it more interesting for employees. We build a more stable business, et cetera. But if you're a family owner, you may, you may also want to grow the business, but you also have a special uh, interest in getting some rewards from that company. Now, if you're in the center of the diagram, on Sunday afternoon, you're having lunch with your family and hearing about dividends. On Monday morning, you're in the management meeting of your company, you know, hearing about the needs for reinvestment. And you need to come up with one policy for dividends, not two. And it's your job to balance competing expectations or interests around 
dividends, the employment of family members, the growth of the company, et cetera, et cetera. And the three circle model helps you think more clearly and simply about people's interests and the kind of balancing act one needs to do to keep these systems vibrant. So uh, there are also ways, uh, the three circle model also reminds us that in the job of business leader, uh, but also family leader, that the, the business, the ownership concerns, the family concerns all need to be addressed and also the development of these systems needs to be coordinated. If you just focus on the business and ignore ownership issues and also ownership interests, thinking, for example, as many business leaders do, uh, they'll be loyal. They'll come along with me. We'll have a, uh, what's important here is just to build a good business. You're going to miss a lot of important topics that need to be managed and led. For example, if you're not bringing your family along, developing them so that they can contribute back to the business in some way, if you're not building family unity over time, uh, not just around your business, but in a healthy way around family activities and family relationships, at some point, uh, problems in the family can undermine the ownership group and can undermine the business itself. So you need to pay attention to all three circles and you need to understand how to develop them, keep them healthy, keep them mutually supportive. So in a very real way, the three circle model reminds us, you know, kind of forcefully of the agenda that business leaders and family leaders really need to attend to. And as you mentioned, some of the largest firms in the world are family owned. And so we're not just talking about this being something to be understood at, if we say sort of grassroots level, um, mum and dad going into business together or siblings going into business together and it's starting relatively small and needing to understand that. It's something that needs to be um, appreciated and, and understood irrespective of the size of business. Would you agree? Uh, precisely. Precisely. Now, uh, most of the world's businesses, we think about two-thirds, and it varies a little bit from country to country. Italy has more family companies. Mexico has more fam a higher percentage of family companies than does Canada, the U.S., et cetera. Um, the U.K. is very similar to the U.S. in terms of proportions of family companies. But about two-thirds of, of all companies are family-owned. And then if you look at the, the largest companies, uh, more than half of, of the, take the 500 largest, the thousand largest companies in the UK, for example, um, they'll be family controlled. Uh, most of the British uh, public companies are family controlled, as is true in the US. And then if you go some, to some place like, again, like Italy, Mexico, India, for example, overwhelmingly, the public companies and large companies are family controlled. 
Mm-hmm. So it's everywhere. And, and the issues, the, you know, the issues do, do vary somewhat um, as you go from small to medium to large and less complex to more complex companies and systems. There are shades of different issues popping up as you move, uh, as you become more developed and more complex. But the, the fundamental issues in these systems are remarkably similar uh, for a small company, a medium family company, a large family company. Hmm. And do you, when you um, and Renata came up with the three circle model, you wrote a paper um, which will provide, I think we can provide a link to in the show notes. Um, if not, if people want to get in touch, then um, I'm sure there's a, a copy we can uh, we can arrange. Um, but it's called The Bibliant Attributes of the Family Firm. And you mention in that paper that success or failure of a family firm depends on how well the features, which are either the different systems, are managed. Do, do you see that playing out in terms of the businesses that are making it to become larger scale and, and are surviving longer, is there anything to suggest that they have a better understanding or better appreciation of those systems compared to those that unfortunately make up the statistics that very few family firms make it through to the third or fourth generation? Yeah. Um, well, what we know, first of all, what we know about this, the survivability of any business, uh, we've, We've been um, looking at this. I've looked at this, looked at this, looked at this, now at this, now for changed a bit. Um, Businesses of almost any stripe, including large businesses, don't survive very long today. Any business, family or non. And family companies tend to survive much longer uh, than non-family companies do. Because the family, the family ownership group tends to be more persistent and more dedicated to the survival of the company than do non-family ownership groups. Uh, having said that, it takes um, a lot of effort today to keep any particular business uh, growing and thriving. And uh, we need to start our discussion of sustainability there, you know, you know, now with uh, technological disruption of, um, of uh, industries, industry maturation, et cetera. uh, You have to be, even for small companies, you have to really be on your toes to keep your business competitive and growing and, uh, and thriving. So, um, we have, uh, so understanding that, we, we do see that family companies over time, um, you know, you, you need to manage the ownership group, the family group. As your company get, gets larger and more complex and where the family has less influence on the, the management of the company, that typically happens over time, doesn't always happen, but it typically happens. Um, the family can, can't disrupt family dynamics, can't affect positively or negatively 
the management of the company as much. That makes sense. But family dynamics can really impact the ownership of the company. And if owners don't get along, if they want things that are unhelpful or unhealthy to the company, if they, if they can't make important decisions that, that are rightly theirs to make, that can definitely affect the, um, uh, you know, the success and survivability of a company. So even very large systems, to get to your point, Russ, even really large family companies depend to some extent on how well that family is united and committed to the success of the company. Fantastic. And do you think that it's important for families themselves to appreciate the different systems that are at play within the business? Or is that the role of, say, their professional advisors to ensure that they're being aware or, or both possibly? Oh, I think, well, look, it, it helps if you have an advisor in various ways, you know, around your business, your family business, your family, et cetera. It helps to be reminded by people you respect about the things we ought to pay attention to in life. I mean, doctors do that for us, ideally, on the health side. Um, and so family business advisors are a good idea if you want to be reminded of what you need to pay attention to and you want some help managing complex issues that it helps to have an outsider working with you on. Uh, but ultimately, families themselves really need to get the three-circle model. They, you know, in the, in the executive ed that I've done over the years, I joke with families that I want to implant this three-circle framework right into your brain. I want this to, to embed this in the synapses of your brain. So whenever you're thinking about family business issues, you go right to this model and you think about, okay, this is happening between the family and the ownership group. How do we manage, improve that? You know, you've got a way of thinking. And as you pointed out, um, it's a simple model, but you need, you can't, there is no way, human beings are not designed to think about complexity with a complex model. You need to have a conceptual framework that focuses on not a big number of things, but a small number of things. So you can order how you're thinking about issues and the health of anything, and you can start, then you can go deeper. But you need a categorization and a conceptual organization of whatever you're looking at. So you've got leverage in identifying what kind of issue, where is it occurring, and what could I do to make it better? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, and you, you <coughs> excuse me, um, we see that 
you know, we've mentioned it already, family firms traditionally seek um, sort of longer term or, or think longer term than, than perhaps non-family businesses. And that can lead to conflicting messages when it comes to decision making. What are some of the methods or processes that families can use to help them more efficient at those decisions? Again, particularly focusing on if they're looking at trying to to grow and, and the business to survive. I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this exact question. There, there's no um, doubt that long-term thinking, planning, organizing, investing improves returns. But um, that doesn't mean that once you make an investment or a commitment to do something, that you can sit back and um, sit back on your heels and just let it unfold. You've got to actively manage whatever investments, relationships, organizational changes you want to make. And I think we've done, you know, there's this uh, description of families in business as being, you know, patient about their capital. We talk about patient capital. And I think that's a misnomer. I think that that has led us to, um, you know, thinking too much of a hands-off approach to long-term management. I prefer to talk about persistent capital. You know, you, you place your bets and then you, yeah, we're going we're gonna to make a long-term investment here. We want, we, we're not thinking in terms of quarters. I'm thinking over the next 10 years, we really want to grow in a specific way, for example. But that doesn't mean it's hands off. Okay, let's see what happens. No, no. You're managing that situation. You're watching your returns. You're thinking about the growth of talent to make this happen right. Uh, You're maneuvering. You've got to stay agile and you've got to stay focused on good returns of various kinds. It's not all about money, but, but you need to have in a long, in an effective long-term approach, you've got to have not just, I wouldn't call it short-term management. I would call it active management of the situation. And one of the vulnerabilities of family companies is that over time, they become less uh, demanding of the of certain investments that they've made because they're they they feel look we've got a long term commitment so if returns are poor at this time we've got to weather it well sometimes that's true but I'm not comfortable with anybody making any kind of short term or long term commitment without a, a focus on managing it actively Uh, and uh, taking that kind of um a step further i guess what we're trying to um, articulate is is having an understanding that there are obviously the family aspirations within the um, business environment 
managing and balancing those um, can be tricky, uh, and particularly given that the the pace of change in um, let's call it the outside world. Uh, I don't, know, don't like that phrase necessarily. It is so fast. We've mentioned already about the technological advances, and um, j- just to kind of um, stand still, you need to, to almost move quickly to, to be able to, um, you know, stand still. Um, do, do you think the, the, the there is anything that can be adapted within the the three circle model to? to help take account of that? Or is it just making sure that within the, the management element of the business, there's the right people in the right seats to be able to adapt to those technological changes? Well, you know, certainly, uh, certainly you've got to, in terms of technology and its impact on business life and competitiveness, um, Making sure that you're agile in the business circle, I would say, is the most important step you need to take. But uh, technological change, change of any kind, ultimately needs to be supported by the ownership group. If your ownership group has a too traditional view of what that business should be doing and how it does its business, and becomes resistant to, you know, responding to disruption, changing the business in some way. We can no longer manage, we can no longer make this or that or make it here or make it in this way. We must outsource. We must change our um, uh, production in some way. We're going to have to uh, beef up or thin down. Uh, in the in to stay active and agile and competitive, your owners have to be able to understand that need and to also uh, support it and have the risk-taking appetite to say, I still want to stay in this game. And so if you're not helping to develop your owners, your key owners especially, so that they can be supportive of what the business needs to do. And maybe also recognize, Russ, when we're no longer the best owners of this company, of this particular business. That's important, too. Because there are games that we can't always win. And so as an ownership group, you've got to be able to think and... and um, discuss and plan with that kind of mentality. Now, to a certain extent, that also requires bringing the family along. So getting back to the point and the, and the, um, the advantage of this helpful little framework of three circles, if you, if you just get focused on what we need to do inside the business, you're going to miss some steps. You're not going to prepare a foundation for active, persistent change, which is now required of companies and family companies. Yeah. Right. And I, yeah, completely. And I think you you've picked up on a really valid point there in that I mean, we've we've spoken about the, the field of family business research is pretty much forty years old, uh, old. and the 
the technological and economic changes that we've seen over that time have been huge but there will be people who have been the the either matriarch or patriarch within their family business through that throughout that entire time and what worked at the um, beginning of their tenure either when they established or took on their role within the family business is not necessarily what will work now technology being the prime example where you can kind of if a business has been manufacturing widgets for 30 years and there's now technological advance that means that you can half the time it's produced in it can be outsourced to somewhere that does it at half the price that there could be an attitude within the family business um, that given that um, persistent capital which i think is a, a really good phrase as well is that that's not how it was done in my day I know better than these people who are coming in telling me I should be outsourcing it or I should be doing this, I should be doing the other. So it, it's appreciating how quickly the world changes and having the um, kind of awareness to, to be able to ensure that the business can adapt at the, the same speed. Yeah. Or perhaps quicker if that's possible. Yeah, you know, I look, I think that what, what I try to remind families of is that um, – You've got to understand the ends, the right ends here. What are you really trying to accomplish, succeed at? And what I, what I propose to my clients and my students is that the ultimate objective is to sustain, perpetuate, enhance value and values. That's what you're in the business of. Uh, generation over generation over generation, but even within a generation, you need to be paying attention to the growth of your economic value, but also how you're doing things, your values, your approach. And those, two, just keep it simple here in our thinking. That's what you're really trying should be trying to do, but we get confused. We we mix up ends and means. Uh, when the founder creates the business, he wanted to add value in some way, and he and he chose a particular thing that he was good at or she was good at, making widgets, better better widgets than the people next door. Uh, to grow value, uh, appeal to customers, uh, and he's, he had or she had their own way of doing things, their values. Okay, well, let's go back to what the founder originally intended because after a while, the, <laughs> the goal becomes protecting this company that we built around the production of widgets. Well, no, I mean, that's, you do that as long as that company is the right vehicle where you can perpetuate and grow value and your values. Of course, if you've got room to still compete well, if you've got room to grow value here, by all means, by all means do it. But... If we no longer can play the game because the industry's changed, or in order to play the game and continue to make good widgets, 
we've got to get really efficient at widget making. Well, let's face up to that. So that's the, that's the fundamental issue here. And this is why I recommend to um, the family business owners and family business leaders, you need to spend more of your time not on operational excellence, which families love to do. They're just wired uh, to really focus on operational excellence of various kinds, better products, better processes, better this, better that. And you need to get up and think like owners about value and values. And how are you going to maintain that? And to do that, you need you typically need some good external advisors on your board, outside of your board, people that can see things that maybe are a little challenging to see. Now, now the next generation comes in and they are more likely to take kind of an outsider point of view, looking more dispassionately about what the previous generation has been involved in. So you get into these very natural, helpful, actually, clashes around or tensions around what should we be doing, how should we be doing it, etc. You know, I, I tell um, my client groups, I say to the younger generation, look, um, the senior generation here is our job is to uh, frustrate you. And your job is to irritate us. <laughs> and, and everybody laughs because they've been through it, right? Yeah. And, and I say, but look, you know, this is not always comfortable. I get it. But we've got to keep talking because there are good perspectives on both sides. But let's, we've got to sit down and not take ourselves so seriously, but take the arguments that we're proposing. And, and learn to think, though, at more of the ownership level. That's where we can connect. And if that becomes, if the value and values of our enterprise become the fundamental thing that we are focused on, well, it's easier for us to connect there. It's easier for us to agree on those objectives and then to think more tactically together about how we do that how we grow value, how we maintain or enhance our values, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, it's a conversation. It's a, it's a wonderful conversation in families, and, but we've got to keep our, um, our eyes on the prize, as I say. You know, you've got to, why, what are we really trying to do? Yeah, I completely agree, and I think some of that can help some of those discussions can then help to identify that businesses can perhaps diversify away from widgets yeah. onto something else whilst maintaining the value and values of the family so the intentions as, as you set out but they don't necessarily have to be wedded to the fact that they have to make these widgets until either something goes pop and that the business kind of implodes or the family does yeah yeah Precisely. Well said. Now, one of the things too, Russ, that I've um, uh, 
everybody agrees today that business is moving faster. We're all keenly aware, even five years ago, I, I met business leaders who weren't so sure that their business was going to be technologically disrupted or really changed because of globalization or even some social factors. The fact that millennials now are a different kind of consumer group than the previous generations, X and my group, the boomers. They didn't, um, today, everybody says, okay, I get it. And then they, you, you think about, okay, well, if things are moving faster, and not just in a continuous way, but in a disruptive way, where there are big steps you have to take from time to time to stay in the game. Well, what should family companies learn uh, about that? Or what, how do we need to adjust our thinking? This, by the way, is the um, gr great reason, the most important reason I moved to MIT uh, for my work. Because at the Sloan School, we're thinking about that all the time. And one of the things you pull out of what we're learning so far is experiment, experiment, experiment. That the old ways of planning and strategizing, et cetera, and then, you know, take a year to study X, Y, and Z, and then uh, create a nice plan, step one, step two, step three, execute, yeah. oh, no. No. It's all changed again. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get halfway into step one and the game has changed again. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and so the old um, strategic planning methods perfected by the big giants of strategic planning, uh, the McKinsey's and the BCG's, et cetera, it's not working in today's world like it worked yesterday. Um, and what we're learning, what we've learned, and certainly in our, in our advisory practice at Cambridge and also in my academic work, um, it is so clear now that companies and families uh, as well, they need to be ex more, much more experimental. You've got to place a couple of bets out there. You're in business. And you've got to be thinking about your next moves. As you, as you do a good job in your current business, you've got to be thinking about your next moves. And so you need to learn. You need to experiment. You've got to place a bet, start some activity, see how it goes. And then the things that are going well, you move more in that direction if they fit well. And the things that you can't do well or just not good ideas, you pull back. And that experimental approach, some families tend to be really good at that. But a lot of families are vulnerable because they get too traditionally tied to the way, the way they do things and what they're doing. And, and the next generation is here in part to remind us to be experimental. And thank God for that tension that they bring into 
families yeah. and businesses. Completely. And what, what, I, what sort of came to mind when you were um, describing that, and, and it, it makes complete sense, but I think one of the, it, it can seem quite intimidating to think I'm going to be the person in this family to try and shift the pace of change or shift the direction for the business. So if something that has been done for many, many years, if you're the custodian of that family business at that time and you're the, the brave one that says, I think we should try this and experiment, that can be really intimidating to, to the point that if you're in a non-family business or you're an employee in a business and you try something and you, you, it goes wrong, the chances are you'll, you'll be able to go off and find another job somewhere else if it hasn't worked out. But, but if you're the, the custodian of the, the family business itself, it can be a lot safer um, in inverted commas to say, I'll leave that to somebody else because the stakes are, are very high because you're dealing with the family, you're dealing with the business and, and then the people that work within it. Yeah. Uh, all true. Absolutely true. And, what you're looking for, in order to affect experimentation and and change number one you have to believe in experimentation and change there there has to be a fundamental ethic within the the culture of the business and the family that this is part of what we're about we're about being good at change and we don't, and so that, that's a mentality. And the, the, it's true that family members can feel a little more intimidated in some situations, but they can also feel more empowered uh, to, you know, push back on the current traditional business and say, look, I really, it's, we got to do this. Let's at least experiment. Number one, uh, especially if somebody's capable, competent, you're less likely to get fired, to be honest. And, and number two, you're going to be an owner of this thing and you want to be proud of it. You want it to have some value. So family members, future family owners or small family owners in the next generation, um, you want them to be good for sure and capable of experimenting and trying and changing. Um, and when you find those kinds of characters and families, they're, they're so useful, so useful. Uh, we've always known this. I mean, the um, generate, I've studied family businesses now for, for decades, but I've studied them over hundreds of years. I mean, many generations. And what you find uh, over time, if you look at successful systems that change, that leadership in the next generation for the most successful systems have gone to change agents. That you, you gravitate towards somebody not interested in just maintaining the status quo. Now, preserving values, um, uh, being a good leader, blah, blah, blah. Yes. But you really go after people that are thinking innovatively 
and willing to change and, and, and have some talent at change. I studied, um, years ago, I studied and wrote about the Kikoman Soy Sauce Company. You know about them? They're in their 16th going into 17th generation in Japan. And if you follow that history over time, 16 generations of change, innovation and change. Now, were all of them, uh, did, they, did they change, innovate a lot? Not in all generations, no. But at key times when they needed to change, the leader, one of the reasons they survived is because they had a leader who could change the company in key ways. And uh, even in the 15th going to 16th generation, in the 16th generation, Yuzaburo Mogi was the guy after World War II uh, in the 1960s who came to the U.S. and built a plant, soy sauce plant in, in the U.S. because he saw that as a very important international investment that could you know, uh, extend their market and make them more efficient. And, uh, but this is, uh, this is pretty natural. So change, looking for change agents is my main point here and not being afraid of change, but saying, look, if we're really going to be long-term thinkers, we've got to be long-term changers. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I, th- I think that's something that's really important um, in business in general, but, but particularly when, um, as, as we see the, the conflict between um, long-term thinking and um, short-term adaptability in, in the family business space. And that's something, as you, you've mentioned a, a couple of times, your role with MIT at the moment is um, looking at the sort of tech disruption and the changes that are happening. And what are some of the trends you're seeing there in the, in the family business world that um, perhaps our audience can uh, learn from? Well, um, we've got uh, both at MIT and at the Cambridge Family Enterprise Group. Uh, we're we're all we're over we're all over this. We're looking for how families and businesses are adapting, and uh, and looking for good models to remind family companies and the families that own them about what is succeeding uh, out there. And what we're seeing is, uh, well, there are a few, uh, let, me, let me mention a couple of maybe the two biggest issues that we're seeing impact these systems. One, of course, is technological change and Um, other forces like globalization, social changes that are really disrupting uh, industries and businesses. We're seeing that. Everybody's seeing that. We're seeing it in a particular way uh, and the the impact it's having on family companies. And we're also seeing this growing gap in expectations between the senior and junior generations. Let me just focus a little bit. Now, the first one I think everybody's clear about, and because this disruptive, these disruptive forces, technology, globalization, social 
uh, changes like the arrival of the millennial generation, etc. These are uh, bucket those over here. And we know that you need to become more agile, experimental. Um, you need to let go of things more quickly uh, that are not working. You need to focus on the growth of value and values, etc. So we see families that are really learning to do that well. And one of the ways they're doing that is to uh, make sure that they that their board of directors that they have a board of directors or an advisory board um, and a way of meeting that takes them out of their operating business and into a higher level. It could be a um, a, uh, a corporate center. It could be a holding company. But you need to get families thinking more like owners. It doesn't mean you give up on operational excellence by any means, but you need to step up. Some people have to step up and see things from an ownership perspective. And we're finding families that are doing that and structuring their decision-making in a way to help them do that. So that's one of the changes we're seeing and that we're promoting. The other change around this increasing gap in expectations, it's a really fascinating um, dynamic that's going on now in society, but it's, it's playing out inside these family business systems. And here's the basic, here's the basic um, uh, dynamics there. The senior generation is living longer. And the senior generation is having a, a longer vital life, not just um, more years, but more years that are active. Okay. So we've been watching this for a while, um, studying the impact of longevity in families and in family business systems and waiting to see basically if business leaders would want to hang in there longer because they're living longer and still feeling vital. And many of them, by the way, are really good at an older age, really good. Um, but you always, and what we're seeing is that not many of them are stepping down and moving on to other activities because, you know, if you've got an extra 20, 25 years of active life and you've always wanted to do something different, uh, travel or be a landscape architect or whatever it is, you've got time now to do that. You've got time to explore something new, et cetera, and hand off responsibilities and authority to the next generation. Or you could stay in the saddle longer. Mostly, we're seeing family business leaders staying in the saddle longer. That's a problem. Why? because the next generation is coming along. They're better educated formally. They have more international experience. They've got much greater familiarity and comfort with technology. And they're better observers of markets in many ways than the senior generation is. So their, and, and their expectations, Russ, about when they should you know, take over or get serious responsibilities, it's, it's becoming younger and younger. 
Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, someone might say, well, you know, when I get to be 40 and dad is pushing 70, I think I'm ready. Now they're saying that when they're 30 or 32. Okay. And so exactly at the point where the younger generation wants to assume more responsibility earlier, the senior generation is saying, I feel great. I'm still good at my job. I'd like to hang in longer. So, so this gap in expectations is a fascinating, but it's a serious vulnerability in these systems. And we're watching, looking at systems to find out how they're managing that. Oh. And that, that's a fascinating subject that, that I've mentioned off air that my day job, if you like, is a financial planner. So we, we look at retirement planning and the concept of retirement has, has completely changed in that it, you know, used to be pipe and slippers and, um, you know, sit around and do a bit of gardening. <laughs> um, and now because people are living longer and, as you say, more vital lives, the, the concept of retirement is changing in its entirety now. Yeah. In our work, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stay with, involved within um, the business, but it's important to understand that there's a sense of identity and purpose linked to that work right. that needs to be replaced in some way in, again, in inverted commas, retirement, um, because otherwise it's not an attractive prospect to say, well, I'm now going to spend the next 30 years of my life trying to get my golf handicap down, um, which yeah. is great for some people. But for me, if I spent you know, a few extra weeks on the golf course and it, it wasn't successful, I'd throw my golf clubs in the bin and, and try and find something new. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get it. I really get it. Personally, I get it too. So uh, this is, you know, he, he, one of the things too to remind ourselves of is that people have never lived this long before. And they've never been as a, you know, as a population. We've never had this issue before. People would, uh, the senior generation would kind of conveniently live men until their late 60s, maybe early 70s, and women into their later 70s, and then die. And they would re retire, live a few years. Business leaders would retire, live a few years, spend a couple of years in not very good health, and then pass away. No longer the case. So society doesn't have any good, uh, many good role models for how to do this, how to make the transition of authority, responsibility, and authority at, in a timely way into the next generation to maintain momentum and learn how to use talents of more senior people in productive ways. How do we do that? And so uh, in my work, we are, um, we're watching it. We're, we're uh, trying to find ways and suggest ways uh, two families for how to thread this needle. Yeah, I, I think that would be um, a fascinating topic for another podcast. Um, if um, if we can uh, schedule it to, to come on and talk about that, because it, obviously it's a subject that's very close to to what I do as a on a day to day basis, um, and it is something that's having a huge impact across 
um, business, family business, and the economy as a whole. Yeah, uh, I'd love to talk with you more about it. It's it's uh, it's a huge issue and a huge um, interest of of mine and also my colleagues. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll try and schedule that. Um, we, we are coming towards the end of our um, time today, unfortunately, um, uh, which is a shame because I, I could probably carry on for um, the rest of the afternoon here talking uh, to you about this. But it, if you had one tip that you could pass on to family businesses, what would it be? Um, you know, it's a, it's a good question. I've been asked that before. It's... Um, it largely comes down to maintaining an open mind and which comes, which, which expresses itself in conversation, but also being very clear on what you're trying to succeed at and sustain. And that is a, that's a wonderful thing to try to get clear about. And uh, what are you, what are you, why are you doing this? What are you really trying to achieve? Uh, you have this company, you have this wealth, you have this, these activities, you've got a family. What are you trying to do? And some of the most important conversations that I've had with business leaders and with families really focus on that important question. And you don't get to the answer if you don't talk. Yeah. Completely agree. Completely agree. Um, as I say, it's been an uh, absolutely fantastic um, to, to have a chat with you about, firstly, the three-circle model and, and how that's been um, used over time and then the work you're doing now. Um, and uh, I... Generally, would love to get on and, and have another show about the um, about lo the longevity issue we discussed. Um, but in the meantime, how can our audience find out a bit more about you? Well, thank you for asking, and it's it's been my pleasure too, Russ, to have this conversation with you. Thank you, and thank you for the work that you're doing for family companies. If people want to learn more about me, my work, they can uh, go to johndavis.com. That's an easy one. JohnDavis.com. Uh -huh. They can follow me on Twitter. They can find me on LinkedIn. And um, and I look forward to hearing from people who are uh, in family companies or serving family companies and um, trying to get more families on the right trajectory. Brilliant. And we will put a link in the show notes to all of those. Um, so if you do want to get in touch with John, you can check out the show notes and the links will be there. Um, but until next time, John, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you again. Thanks so much, Russ. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fanbizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.